Hi, this is Chandra Brigman, and you're listening to Live from the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Live from the Cafe. I'm sitting here to do another feature interview. I'm sitting with Reagan McNeely, who is a licensed mental health clinician. Reagan, I like to start out all of these interviews with a pretty simple question, but I do appreciate an honest answer. How is your day going? Uh, mixed. I got up and I got here, and that's always a terrifically good thing to get to my workspace and actually be able to sit down and focus. And uh, I actually started it this morning up on the twelfth floor. I needed as much sunset as I, uh, sun sunlight as I could get, and sat up on the twelfth floor of one. What's the two forty five? Two, two, yeah, two forty five. And then I I spent. Um, uh, the next part of my morning in, in agency, which is a coalition, a, a conglomeration of, of co-workers working in the aging space. Um, and I have a couple of people that I want to connect to and connect to each other. So that, well. that really filled me up. <laughs> so you're a fairly new member of the community here at Venture Cafe. Um, why don't you start off just telling us how you found us? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, I came here probably two, a year, year and a half ago, no, two or three years ago with my partner uh, who has been coming to Venture Cafe for many, oh, four or five years anyway. Um, I don't know her number, you know, that magic number. Uh, she brought me here two, three years ago and, and about a year ago, she says, why don't you go down there and, and, and provide services? And I said, well, what are you talking about? Why, why would I do that? And uh, she explained to me that people who are in startup ventures and who are entrepreneurs are frequently working by themselves and uh, no strangers to feelings of despair and hopelessness and frustration and struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression. I thought, well, that's true. I, I, I struggle with all those things myself. I know what it's like to struggle. Uh, and traditionally, I've worked in mental health settings, traditional mental health settings, and spent the last 10 years in Roxbury providing mental health services within a primary care health center. So let's talk talk about those services. I started off reading this jumble of letters, LMHC, is that right? Yeah, Licensed Mental Health Clinician. Okay, so, so what the, does that mean? Yeah, in the state of Massachusetts, uh, to practice as a therapist, as a master's level clinician, uh, which allows you then to, to bill insurance companies, uh, you have to have a master's degree, uh, at the very least, uh, in mental in, in some area in mental health. Um, uh, traditionally, you would have been a PhD psychologist. Uh, you would have become a social worker. And those two groups uh, are licensed psychologists, licensed social worker. Uh, everybody else who came along, you've got MEDs or MAs or various other degrees in the provision of mental health, end up being licensed mental health clinicians in the state of Massachusetts. So I have an MA in psychoanalysis. I studied psychoanalysis. So obviously you have a history before you walked in to the CIC and to Venture Cafe. Tell me sort of the origin story. How did you get started in this field of work? Uh, 30 years ago, (laughs) a long time ago, it was my second career. Uh, my first career, I, I was convinced since the age of 13, I think my grandmother said, oh, you, you should become a product designer. My father was an, was a, was an architect and a very good one, uh, but I didn't like the idea of building buildings or spaces. I loved working with my hands and making things. And my grandmother said, oh, you could become a product designer. They make everything. They design everything that's, you know, smaller than a bread box or smaller than a car or all of the products that we've ever bought looked at. 
uh, are designed. Somebody has to design those things. And I never knew that. Uh, so from the age of 13, I knew I was going to be a product designer. Um, my senior year in college, uh, that didn't go so well. I, I took a furniture design class. I, I actually went and got a bachelor's degree in geography. <laughs> you know, did the typical uh, white upper middle class go to get your, you know, liberal arts degree. Mm. Didn't apply for a professional school. Certainly didn't go to a vocational high school uh, where I probably would have been a lot happier. Um, got a bachelor's of science in geography. But my last year, I talked myself into an archi architecture uh, class on uh, designing furniture. Thought, well, I'm, I'll get my start here. Let me design a chair. So I designed a magical chair. The only problem is the magical chair got so magic that I couldn't control it, and I didn't know how to make it, and it needed to be made. You're supposed to make a chair by the end of the semester. Um, and uh, a long story short, I ended up in the hospital. I had a nervous breakdown. It's really cutting to the end of the story. Yeah, there. yeah. So at the age of 22, I ended up in a psych hospital. Now, thank goodness it was considered at that time a brief reactive psychosis. And, and the psychiatrist told me, oh, God, you were in the architecture program. That happens to an awful lot of architects. <laughs> I said, well, no, I wasn't really in the architecture program. He said, well, even you're worse. You, you tried to you know, do something that you, really I didn't know how to do. Um, so that taught me, well, it taught me, it taught me a lot. It taught me, among other things, that I needed more help um, and uh, certainly to design chairs if I were going to design chairs. Uh, but eventually it, it, it ended me up on an analyst's couch, psychoanalyst's couch. And I spent the better part of two or three years talking about uh, my struggle with what I wanted to do for a living. I didn't want to work alone. All the while I worked as a model maker. And you know, model makers make pro models of products. They make prototypes. Um, and I was going to apply to RISD and get into their master's program and become a world-famous product designer. Well, two, two, three years in, I realized I had this, this kind of occurred to me, the world doesn't need another toaster oven. <laughs> it's literally what I said to myself. And I, I say it to myself till this day, the world doesn't need another toaster oven. What I meant was, I don't need to be the one who's going to design the next toaster oven that you buy. And in the process of being an analysis, I realized that being with people was more important to me than being with, you know, things and making stuff and, you know, working on just the right color of that next toaster oven and what it was going to be made out of. Um, and I ended up working in a, in a program for kid, with kids. Uh, I needed to pay my psychoanalyst. And he said, you better go out and get a, <laughs> a job. He said it a little more forcefully than that um, because I was running out of money. And I was getting tired of working as a model maker. And I got a job uh, working with D DSS kids, kids that were taken out of uh, their homes. And I uh, was lousy at it. I was really bad at taking care of kids who had emotional problems. But my, my supervisor was wonderful at the time. He said, why don't you go work with adults? You might be better off working with adults. My, he said, my wife works up at McLean. Go up there and talk to people. A year later, I was working at McLean. And I fell, it's an odd thing to say, I fell in love working with schizophrenics, chronic schizophrenics. And at the same time, I discovered that where I was in treatment, the couch I was lying on was in a school uh, whose founding members all started their work working with schizophrenics. And I had this amazing experience of realizing I could actually study what it was I was going to work to work with every day. And uh, that started 11 years of training as a psychoanalyst. And actually, it went on for 20 years, but I got a master's degree out of that. And all but dissertation, uh, which towards being a certified psychoanalyst, um, which isn't uh, anything that anybody cares about except other psychoanalysts. Um, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm a chapter away from completing a, 
120 pages about a particular patient whom I still see (laughs) to this day. Fast forwarding today, you're working out of a co-working space. You sort of explained how you were introduced to this space and to this community. Um, But why did you decide to finally join and become a member? What what really intrigued you about that? Absolutely. It's, um, I realized working for 30 years in the field and working in every setting. I worked in inpatient settings. That's where I you know, sort of fell in love with the field working at McLean Hospital. Uh, and I worked in every department at McLean Hospital, adults, children. I ended up working in, uh, you know, the rehab and uh, doing substance abuse work. Um, worked in hospitals, worked in outpatient clinics. I ran an outpatient clinic, ended up in a primary care health center. And I became really interested in introducing people to therapy while they were sitting with their doctor. Now, it turns out in Roxbury, most of the people who came in to see our doctors uh, were struggling with PTSD. As a matter of fact, 80 to 90 percent of the patients who came in from, for primary care struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder, actual wow. PTSD. Now, they had other problems, too, anxiety, uh, depression. Uh, a lot of them were in and out of prison, which would certainly explain the PTSD. Uh, they were in chronic uh, multi-generational homeless situations, uh, just disabled by their mental health uh, issues. They did not want therapy. Uh, nobody wants to go see a therapist, right? You want to you pretend you're okay. You want to be able to walk the street, uh, be tough. Uh, not let anybody beat you up, not let anybody know that you're about to burst into tears. Um, So I would go into the doctor's offices, you know, and the person was ostensibly there to get their uh, insulin uh, adjusted or regulated, but they weren't actually taking their insulin. They were so depressed they couldn't get to the pharmacy to pick it up. So the doctor would realize they had more of a behavioral health issue than they had a health issue. And that got me really interested in well, working in, a, in an underserved community, which I did for 10 years, uh, really sensitized me to the need to destigmatize the provision of mental health um, and to be an evangelist for the importance of it. And uh, it, uh, it was really painful because most of the people who came into the health center needed my help. Now, it turned out I couldn't help them all. We had 20 to 30,000 people. I had a, a, co- a group of 16 providers and, and nobody had any room on their schedule. Uh, we had a waiting list. Our waiting list went from two months to three months. Occasionally, it was at six months. And I spent the last three or four years of my time there getting rid of the waiting list, and I figured out a way to do it. So I had to change the culture of the place. I had to change the culture of our department. I had to change the culture of primary care. But that became my passion. Long and short, doctors came and go so rapidly that I got very worried about how healthcare was being provided in this in this community. And it turned out the... Uh, CEO wasn't very interested in that problem. We got uh, organized, literally got organized, and a bunch of us decided we needed a union to protect ourselves uh, so that we could make a viable place to work, so that people would stay, so that they could provide better health care. CEO got uh, pretty upset with that. Uh, We voted in a union. We voted it in, about 95% of us voted to unionize. The first health center, primary care health center, to unionize in New England. So it was, it, was, it was wonderful. Now, of course, in the process, I developed an enemy in the CEO, and she literally couldn't walk through the hall without hissing at me, literally hissing at me, slamming doors. And I got to feeling pretty unsafe. And needless to say, I got fired with about 22 of the rest of us. We got rehired. She fired me again. We got involved with the National Labor Relations Board. Eight months later, ended up with 15 months pay to never come back again. It broke my heart. I mean, I, 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 it was devastating. <clears throat> take a minute. I have to take a breath. Um, 
it broke off a relationship, a deep relationship that I had with four or 500 people that I'd been helping in the course of my career there. And probably 5,000 people I'd seen at least once or twice and was hoping to see again. And it took everything in my power to kind of get my feet back under me and wake up every day and continue in my private practice, which is, well, always had a private practice, but it, but it, you know, that's a lonely business working for yourself. And uh, long about that same time, my partner said, why don't you go provide services in a co-working space? They need your help just as much as your patients in Roxbury do. They just don't, they just don't know it. Or, they, you know, they've never been exposed to that before. They don't know what it's like to actually have to go find a therapist, most of them. Uh, some of them do. I happen to know it's incredibly difficult to find a therapist. Even if you're poor, you have Mass Health, Medicare, Medicaid, you go into the health center, God forbid, they have a waiting list, three to six months. If they haven't had me kind of work through a system and create urgent care, immediate access to, to behavioral health, there is no such thing. I mean, you have to be sick enough to want to kill yourself, and then you end up in the emergency room. And uh, then you spend the night there, and maybe the next day they refer you to a hospital. You spend three or four days there. They discharge you. Because you say, no, I mean, you know, this is not fun. I don't want to do this. I can't afford to do this. I need to get back to work. Uh, it's really hard to get behavioral health services. That, and that's if you're wealthy. That's if you can pay cash. You can, you can call 20 or 30 providers. I've got Blue Cross Blue Shield. You go down their list. you got 80, 90 providers in your neighborhood. You, you can call 20 of them. One of them will call you back two weeks later and say they don't have any room on their panel. Good luck finding a therapist. It's really hard to find a good therapist. It's really hard to find a therapist at all. You can offer to pay cash. If you want to pay $120, $150 an hour, you know, somebody will take you. They're happy to take you rather than the guy they get paid $80 an hour to see by Blue Cross Blue Shield. That's why they don't want to see Blue Cross Blue Shield. They want to take your cash. I've been in the business a long time, and it's, you know, uh, it's not fun to provide treatment in those settings where you got all kinds of pressures. You have to fill out all kinds of paperwork. Good therapists leave those settings. Uh, they're not, you can't find them. Now, some of those conditions that you mentioned earlier that you were dealing with in Roxbury, depression, anxiety, loneliness, delusional aspirations, yeah. these are all things that are very prevalent in the startup community. Yeah. Before I was hosting this podcast, I was and still am a solo entrepreneur mm -hmm. for six years mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. only by myself right. until I went out and found a therapist. Good for you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The effects I can just say from a personal level, mm -hmm. um, my effectiveness yes has doubled yes. in the past ten months. Yes, um, my clarity of thought and um, just clearness of mind right. is something that's hard to quantify. Yeah. yeah, and it's something that is starting to get talked about on the fringes of startup culture. Right. But it's still not mainstream. Exactly. And there is still massive rates of suicide among founders, yeah. among entrepreneurs. Yeah. In fact, I remember reading an article when I just started out that said it made some pretty, what I thought to be an outlandish claim that something like 70, 80% of founders that raise money, raise capital, mm -hmm. uh, suffer from some sort of chronic mental... Yeah, diagnosable axis Absolutely. one disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, honest yep. to goodness mental illness. So... Yeah. Um, I think 
it's something that needs to be talked about. And now you're going to be doing a workshop mm-hmm. at Venture Cafe's Health and Wellness Night, which is coming up on January 23rd, sponsored by the CIC. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what you're going to be doing. What What's this workshop going to be on? Well, Pete, you know, first question is, what are you doing here? <laughs> I don't need you. You're not You're not analyzing me, are you? <laughs> my, 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 my canned response is, you're not paying me, are you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because our kids now, if, if you're in an inner city uh, elementary school, uh, chances are, and you're, and you're on Mass Health, chances are your kid has access to a licensed mental health clinician working, co-located in that school, providing mental health services to your child. Uh, if you're a little wealthier, not so much, right? If you have Blue Cross Blue Shield, that same clinician may not be able to see you. They may not have a, a you know, they, they may not have an agreement with Blue Cross Blue Shield to provide you with in-home or in-school therapy. Increasingly, and we, and we read about this all the time, uh, our college kids, um, I'm well beyond that, but my kids will have access to mental health services in their colleges. People do not have access to behavioral health in their workplaces. And people treat it like, oh, that we wouldn't do that here. That you know, why would you allow that to happen in a workplace? Wouldn't people get out of control? Uh, wouldn't you know? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't wouldn't it be triggering? Uh, you know, I, if I want to see a therapist, I want to do it at work. Well, the question is, when are you going to do it? And then how are you going to find somebody to do it with? <laughs> it's ri- and then how are you going to convince your boss you need two hours off in the middle of the afternoon to travel out to Arlington to sit with your therapist and then come back? Uh, not going to happen. <laughs> You're not going to end up with any services. So here's the thing. Our children now are, are more and more uh, in school settings um, being allowed to see a therapist. And teachers are like, oh, thank God that kid drives me crazy. Thank God they get to go see a therapist. And, and I don't have to worry about whether the mother can get them to an appointment, you know, uh, two towns away at four o'clock in the afternoon when she's coming home from work and trying to cook dinner. Because that's not going to happen. Kid is not going to see a therapist. I promise you, they're just not. They're going to cause trouble in the classroom. Going to, the teacher's going to tear their hair out. Well, this is happening in our workplaces now because those same kids are working with us. You know, And they, they, they may be quiet. They may be sitting there, but they may be incredibly distracted. They may not be able to pay attention in a meeting. Um, they may, you know, all of these problems are following us all the way through our life cycles, and they're certainly following us into work every day. So the idea that you, you know, shouldn't seek out mental health services while you're working um, is an odd one. And slowly that stigma is, you know, kind of melting away. People are, you know, if we were in New York City, everybody boasts about who they, who their psychoanalyst is. You know, it's kind of like it's the in thing. I mean, if you're Woody Allen, you have a psychoanalyst. Well, you're also pretty disturbed and clearly clearly need that help to continue to do your work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe keep you out of the press, <laughs> the wrong kind of press. Uh, we need help. Increasingly, we you can watch, I'm thinking of the, the show Billions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy, uh, he works with his wife, who is a, is a, is a psychiatrist and uh, coaches his coworkers how to do their work. Now, I've not watched the show, but increasingly it's being written into scripts. We're seeing therapy in the, in the, in the shows we watch, and we're seeing it integrated into the workplace and in, in wonderful ways. Um, but we're not seeing it in our workplaces yet. I mean, we don't have a, a therapist down the hall at Google yet. <laughs> we do now have a therapist down the hall at CIC. Question is, how will I be useful to the CIC community? And, and that's what I'm here to figure out and uh, to, to create, to create something which generally doesn't exist in our workplaces. 
So I'm, yeah, not, not going back to the healthcare setting. I am in a corporate setting and I'm providing uh, clinical services, although I'm not, you know, I'm not diagnosing, I'm, you know, it's not a private therapy session. I'm not billing your insurance company. But short of that, short of my referring you to private practice, what can I do for you? What can I do to help you keep you out of a therapist's office or, or tell you, you know what, I have the right person for you to see? Because you do need to see somebody. And let me make a phone call and see if I can hook you up with a guy. Or I have time on Thursday afternoon at uh, 2 o'clock. Come, come and see me. I'm, I'm 10 minutes away. It's a fascinating thesis. It's one that I tend to agree with mm. pretty strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just about out of time here. I wish we could continue this mm. discussion. Mm. Maybe we will in another follow-up yes. interview. Um, but if you are interested in learning more about this, about mental health in the workplace, stop by our Health and Wellness Night, January 23rd at 1 Broadway in Cambridge, Mass. Uh, Reagan, thank you so much for your time. We always like to close out these interviews with two questions Mm -hmm. that really reinforce the credo of Venture Cafe. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is one way in which you can help the community? I think you've sort of answered that already, but I'll ask it again. (laughs) And then what's one way the community can help support you? Mm, Frank, I, I always feel, well, I feel an honor to be to even be allowed into a community because most people are, are they're like, oh, I, I don't want to deal with that, right? Or, well, why are you here? Or like I say, you're not analyzing me, are you? So um, I'm here uh, working on being as humble as I can and trying to learn from the community how I could be of use. Uh, if there were a ready model that I could just apply and plop it down, I would. I'm creating that as we go. So I'm asking people to approach me and literally say, well, you could be useful to me in this way. Uh, That could be a CEO who's got two or three people he's really worried about and he doesn't know how to intervene with them. Uh, It could be a sole owner who's struggling to get out of bed every day to get here. Um, You know, I've got all kinds of ideas for how I could be helpful. I want people to tell me. They have to tell me. They have to come and find me and say, look, this is how you could be helpful to me. I have all kinds of ideas about how to do that. I need an audience. So what does that mean? It means, um, what would I ask of the community? To allow themselves to feel vulnerable enough to come talk to a guy who says he's an expert in this area and trust that he'll be helpful. And that's a lot to ask of people, you know, to to ask uh, of a person to be vulnerable. Uh, Let's go find a quiet uh, conference room, uh, you know, where we've got some privacy and talk. And let's see if there's anything I can do to help you. If any of the listeners can't make it to the Health and Wellness Night Adventure Cafe, where can they find you online? I, I am, well, so I, I'm in the process of creating an online presence. Uh, I've always been on the Psychology Today Therapy Finder. I am cwcscambridge.com. So that's coworkers, coworkerconsultingservices.com. It's pretty generic. It's the brown paper bag that your product comes in. And, uh, you know, I don't want want to scare people off. I'm a licensed mental health clinician, but I'm not here doing clinical work. I'm here consulting. I'm in C3 two days a week, uh, hopefully between 10 and 5 or 6, so 15, 16 hours a week here at C3. I roam. I love to walk the halls. Um, I can be reached at 617-610-3249. That's the best way to reach. I'm old-fashioned. I like phone calls, uh, texts. (laughs) That's great. I hope this has been... um helpful, useful, entertaining for you and for everyone listening. Reagan, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Frank. Thanks very much. Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, 
a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.